You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Um, guys, it's good to see you. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm particularly jazzed this morning, so actually I'll try to not you know, do a lot of jump scares or anything. But um, I don't know about you, but the minor prophets have been cool. It's been awesome just to kind of get into it. I mean, can you name all 12 minor prophets? <laughs> no, <laughs> not even a try. Jesus is the answer. Just say Jesus, right? Right, but it's just saying like it's, there's kind of unknown. They're just these, what are these, you know? And again, as we talked about last time, there's kind of the bigger ones, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel can be in that. And they kind of have these big overarching messages. And if you go and try to read them, they're just, they're huge and amazing. And one day we should, we should go through them. But then the minor prophets are kind of these like almost narratives or stories or hyper-focused, like, okay, you, you know, you heard what Jeremiah said, turn to the Lord or you will be destroyed. Okay, well, you didn't. So let me give you like three minor prophets of like specific things that have happened because you didn't or whatever, you know, and it, and it, and it what it does is it grows our understanding of the depth of God's love for his people and the depth of God's holiness against sin holiness and his kingdom of light and holiness versus the kingdom of darkness. So we're growing our understanding in the depth. So what you'll hear is not necessarily from the minor prophets, a new message. And I'll be like, oh man, I've never heard that before. It might sound really familiar, but it's growing. It's, it's, it's actually growing this onion of the depth of God and his character and love. So two weeks ago, we looked at the prophet Jonah. You can go re-listen to that if you forgot. Um, I know you remember everything we ever say. Um, but if you go, you can listen to that, or if you missed it, and, and, and God used Jonah to go to this wicked city of Nineveh and preach repentance. And actually, it's interesting that each time God uses the prophet, he uses them in a mighty way to do his work. But then also, we get a snapshot of the prophet figuring out and being kind of dumbfounded by, by something new about God. So Jonah was actually awestruck and, and actually a little bit peeved that God would actually save or not bring destruction upon this wicked city of Nineveh. So you watch this prophet be like, well, I know that I just preached this, but like, God, that's incredible. Like, how could you do that? I'm a little mad about it, right? Last week, uh, we looked at Hosea, which is just this incredible story, and God used Hosea to speak to his people to tell them their idolatry, turning away from him is a lot like adultery. It's a lot like breaking this covenant with me, but then he actually used Hosea's life and had him experience it. Remember, he went, he married a prostitute with Gomer, and he actually experienced her kind of breaking covenant with him so that when he preached this message, he knew it really, really well. Well, today we're looking at the next prophet named Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Um, Zephaniah's focus, remember we talked about there was a kingdom split in Israel. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Okay, his focus is actually on the southern kingdom. It's kind of supposed to be the good people, right? It's supposed to be the people, their, their capital is Jerusalem, um, in the nation of Judah, and the tribe of Judah, and they're supposed to be the people that are just so in with God, and yet they have been corrupted by idols, by idolatry, again, kind of like the northern kingdom. And then also what he gets at is he also says, but even if you haven't been fully corrupted by Id- idol worship, your heart is just not in it. Your heart, you, you say the right things, you say you worship me, you do these sacrifices, but you do not have a heart for me. So now this judgment is now coming to the people that are supposed to be 
God's people through the prophet Zephaniah. So let's get into it. Chapter 1, verse 1. And by the way, there's only three chapters in the book, so if you think you're going to get out early, you're not right. Okay? So there's a lot, there's a lot in here. The chapter, or chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Okay, so king, the days of Josiah. So just all that was to give you like historical background. We're not going to get into it, but days of Josiah. Josiah at the time was actually, in comparison to the other kings, was actually a king that did well. He actually was against the corruption of this idol worship. He tried to break out, break down the Asherah pillars. He tried to break down the idols. He tried to uh, institute rules and laws that would keep the people from turning uh, to the Baals. Um, and setting his kingdom decrees, and yet people persisted in secret. So they would say out front, they'd say, yes, King Josiah, we follow you, but then in the secret of their own lives, they would still follow these idols. Um, And here's what he says. Here's what God says. When God appointed a king to lead the people in the way, and the people still did what was wrong in secret, here's what God says, verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Pretty stark, right? Right off the bat, God kind of goes reverse Genesis on the people, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he filled it with living creatures, right? To enjoy and to steward man, animal, bird, and fish. But now it's like flood language. Verse 3, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Extreme judgment is the point here. I'm going to take that stuff that I love, that I poured into my will, I'm going to take it away. How does this happen? Verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Right? The increasing wickedness here, focused on these corruptions from the Baals, the other gods the people turn to, the judgment is going to be cutting you off from that connection. I want to cut that connection off. Because here's what would happen. Like we said before, they would do the right religious acts. They would give the lip service. Verse 5, those who bow down on roofs, though to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Milcom was this ancient word. It literally translates your king. So it's kind of whatever you've given your allegiance to. And it's usually not an actual king. It usually has to do with an idol or some sort of other um, god that they're trying to serve. So now they're without excuse. Verse 7, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Listen, have you guys heard that phrase before, the day of the Lord? If you've been around the scripture, you've been around church, you should, right? Well, here, just quick background. Let's get nerdy for a second, and it's, I think it'll really be great, and it'll help us, right? So once again, back in our Bibles, if you go all the way back to the flood, okay, you go back to the flood, Genesis 6, right? You see the world is repopulated after the flood, okay? He's repopulated. There's this remnant that God says, now I'm going to take you. I'm going to rebuild. So repopulate with living people, but the people, because of sin, even though the flood happened, the people still on a soul level had a disease, had a sickness, right? Because now they were sin cursed. And what the curse was for the people then to now have to define for themselves what was good and what was evil, right? 
The people of God are constantly falling into this trap of defining for themselves at good what should be evil and evil what should be good. And they can't get it right over and over again. That's the curse of sin. But the thing is, they were struggling with it. Other nations saw this like, oh, you could take what's evil and make it good. Great, let's go all in on that. And that is the kind of nation that's represented in the Bible of Babylon. There's an actual Babylon, but it's the, the thing of it. Sorry, doesn't matter. But Egypt was one of these Babylons. It's a nation with Pharaoh being like their idol, right? Where they're like, hey, we can take what's evil and make it good. Yes, we're not going to feel bad about it. We're going to go for it. We're going to make it all about this, right? So you know the story. God used Moses to free his people out of Egypt. God sends plagues. Pharaoh says, go away. The people leave. Pharaoh says, wait, no, come back. Uh, the people are scared between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. Okay, hopefully this is incredibly familiar to you, right? God makes a way then through the waters, and as the people pass by on dry land, Pharaoh's army comes in, and the waters come crashing down, okay? Now here's where the day of the Lord comes in. Once they are on the other side, there's this really cool song that they sing, and there's this reference they make to the day of the Lord. The salvation is the Lord's this day. And there's a verse, uh, Exodus 14, 30. It says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So from that point on, for a long, long time, the day of the Lord is the people of God's deliverance from the corrupt people who have made what was good evil. Does that make sense? So like the human corruptness, like these big institutions like Egypt, they're like, we've been saved from them. Now we are God's people because the day of the Lord happened. So forever, it was always this outside thing. It was always just like, the day of the Lord's going to come for you, wicked people. The day of the Lord's coming, but we are going to be saved out of that. But now something switched here. In Zephaniah, and really since we've seen from the beginning, instead of Egypt or some other nation being corrupt and Israel pure, he's saying the day of the Lord is coming for you. You have become corrupt. You have become like those Babylon-esque places now, where you say you're worshiping me, but you're just doing your own thing. You're still thinking now. You've actually been, become so convinced that what was evil is actually not so bad. And like, we can do that. God is good, right? But Zephaniah says, no, the day of the Lord is now, and it's for you. It's for you first, not out there, not outside of, of you. The problem's not out there. The problem is with Judah, right? It's them who would become corrupt. So verse 10, he says, on that day, on the day of the Lord, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. So that's just, those are different parts of the city, right? That's just saying like calamity will come down on you. There'll be wailing everywhere, right? The hills, these big hills, Mount Zion will come crashing down. And at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Like such incredible imagery here, like in the rubble, like God will come and search with a lamp. And what, is a, what does the light expose? The darkness, right? He'll search for a light 
coming after the people who think they're hidden, who think they're in secret. We're safe because we're in the dark. Nobody knows. He's coming with a light. And I will punish the men who are complacent about me. And this last line might not seem that crazy to you. The Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. But real quick, think about this. Back in Deuteronomy, and just go home today, just mark, write this down, whatever, write, read Deuteronomy 28. Okay, it's a, it's a crazy chapter. God's giving of his law and his commandments, and the chapter is all about blessings if you obey and curses if you disobey. So you go read it, and it's, it's, it's crazy. It's incredible. It's a striking read, but let me read you this. Deuteronomy 28.1. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Okay, so this is core to Israel's identity. If you obey, I will set you up to be this nation. Conversely, Deuteronomy 28.15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments, and the statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Okay, this is core to who they are. They know this. If you're an Israelite, you know this. Blessings for following God, curses for disobedience. So now how many generations later, knowing this, to become so complacent to say, God isn't really going to do anything right? Like, he's not going to bless us, and he's not going to curse. Like, it's not that big a deal. Who is God to me? And if you go and read Deuteronomy 28, he talks about the curses for doing this, and this is actually really familiar back in Zephaniah. This is verse 13. It says, their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them right? There's just going to be no fruit, nothing. You're going to run dry. And in case they still romanticize this kind of day of the Lord, be like, well, but we're good people. God still loves us. In case they have that, here's how Zephaniah describes the day of the Lord. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. Man, like that's, not, that's not disco balls and unicorns and sprinkles, right? That's, that's intense stuff. That terrible moment of dread for the Egyptians who thought they were so high and mighty, chasing God's people through the walls of water in Exodus, that terrifying moment when they saw the first guy in front, the water come down and the water keep going, that terrifying moment Israel is supposed to feel that now. You're in there and you are at the mercy of God. And if you think you're too high and mighty, realize Egypt was high and mighty. It even says, verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. So chapter one, there's there's just three chapters up nine. Chapter one comes to a close. It's looking bleak, right? God is passionate about rooting out corruption. There's no hiding. There's no protection. The day of the Lord will not be kind to the unrepentant and evil doer. See, here God's kingdom is not good news for those who want to live in rebellion. The light exposes the darkness. So God, through Zephaniah, he charges the people. This is the start of chapter two. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. In other words, like, all right, shape up. Get yourself together. You're not doing great. 
before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, what should you do? Should you, should you gather up and band together and see what you can do? Zephaniah tells him, chapter 2, verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. It's a bleak picture, but it's the encouragement should be that God is not complacent. God still greatly cares about sin, but he also cares deeply about repentance, right? And like a good father, he wants to save his children. Now, God moves on in chapter two. He moves on to the surrounding nations of Israel, okay? And this is actually really important because most of us, like, we don't know these places. We're going to read their names in a second, and it's going to be like, where are these things? But you think about Israel, and you think about them and God saying, guys, you're not doing great. You got to shape up. And then he turns it outward and he says, look what I'm going to do. I'm going to actually show you that I'm not just little Israel's God, that everyone can kind of serve their own God. I am God of the universe. I'm God of everywhere. So what I'm going to do, you've heard about all these other nations. You've heard about all these other places that are defaming my name, that are living the way that you want to live. You see them, you think it's cool, you want to do it, but I'm actually going to judge them. I'm going to show you what it's like that I am their God. I'm actually going to do this. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm actually going to read this. We don't have time to like get into the history. I don't even know half these places. But if we just read, it's like 12 verses, and just imagine you're an Israelite. You know the surrounding areas, and God is going to tell you what he's going to do these surrounding areas just to kind of prove a point. Like, listen, I can do these things. So just let's sit under it and just imagine what it would be like to hear all these places. This is chapter 2. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O seacoast, shall be pastures, with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah on which they graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they have taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushite, shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. 
A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. It's intense, right? Just think about an Israelite just hearing through Zephaniah, God declare what's going to happen, right? To understand the magnitude that God is not just this little G God. God is God Yahweh, the God of the universe, who could take everything away. He's made everything but he desires faithfulness and obedience. And now entering into the final chapter of Zephaniah, he kind of puts the two together. He prioritizes the point that Judah, the nation, surrounded by all these nations, the nation that is supposed to represent God, the nation that was supposed to be set apart, taken out of not looking like the rest of the world, right? He's going he's gonna to talk to them here. So he puts them together. There's the nations that are doing whatever they want, and there's you who aren't that different, chapter 3 comes in. He talks more generally. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Right? Israel, you guys had me in your presence, and you've done nothing with it. Right? You lean on your own understanding. You do not trust the Lord. You do not draw near to him. There's no evidence of fruit in your lives that they are truly following God. Even the ones in charge are corrupt. Look at this, chapter 3, verse 3. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till morning. Right? They're loud in their opinions and what they think is right. right? And they devour each other without a thought of love or self-sacrifice. There's greed, there's selfishness. The city leaders are corrupt. The justice system here is corrupt and self-seeking. Furthermore, there's an incredible spiritual unhealth as well. Verse 4, her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. Just think about this sitting in this magnitude, right? The city management of Judah is self-seeking and greedy. The justice system doesn't care about the low and needy, about the oppressed. In fact, what did he call it? He says, oh, you oppressive city. But their prophets were supposed to relay God's word to them and bring them back to God, and yet they're treacherous and they're lazy. Furthermore, they're priests who help them with the daily practices of worship profane what God has made holy and defile the law so much that the opposite of worship is violence, right? Violence. They're in bad shape. So what do you do when you can't trust your city management, when you can't lean on your justice system, when you can't listen to your prophets, you can't listen to your priests? What do you do? Do you run and hide? Do you give up? What do you do? Turn. You turn to the Lord. Verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. What do you do? You trust in the Lord. 
His justice is righteous, and He is showing it right now with you. His, he is righteous, so He is acting His judgment upon the unrighteous. It's not just a punishment. It's literally who God is. He can't not be righteous. And he says, listen, you've seen me do this. Verse 6, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. And here was the hope for this. Here was the hope I wanted you to see. Verse 7, I said, surely, surely you will fear me and you will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. Surely that would be it. But what was the result? But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. Therefore, the Lord says, verse 8, therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. I love how Eugene Peterson translated this in the message. He says, well, if that's what you want, then stick around, because here's the decree. Your day in court is coming, but remember, I am the one to bring the evidence. I will bring all the nations to the courtroom. I'll round up all the kingdoms and let them feel the brunt of my anger, my raging wrath. My zeal is a fire that will purge and purify the earth. Intense, right? You got shivers? Good. <laughs> Praise God, right? Judah has stood proud, looking at all the other nations, praying for God's judgment. God's changed them, judged them. They're wicked, right? But the purifying salvation of judgment is coming first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. It's coming first to God's people. This will be the day of the Lord for Judah, and it's looking awesomely terrifying. But again, as we're seeing with all these minor prophets, though they're used as warnings and they're speaking with urgency, you must turn. There is always a hope of restoration. Always, right? Zephaniah starts now to work backwards in the middle to late part of chapter 3, now starting with restoration potentially for the surrounding nations and then to get closer. Verse 9, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Verse 12, And I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. And instead of trying to run from God, instead of trying to change your own fate, right, God actually tells Israel here, it's so fascinating, to rejoice about the opportunity they get for restoration. Verse 14, we read this earlier. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies, the king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. After all that he has said, there's a call to praise because there is a cause to praise. The Lord is compassionate and will restore the remnant of Israel to himself. Their judgment is brought on because of their own wrongdoing, but their restoration is only because of God's goodness and love. 
Verse 16, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This picture of this loving father rejoicing over his long lost children, rejoicing with gladness. Verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. For those of you who mourn the loss of the festivals, you want the old tabernacle way, you just want to be where you were with God. When God got up and you moved, you moved. When God stopped, you stopped. You were just there with your one true God. I want those days. I'm going to reinstate you as my people like them. And not just you, but the lame and the outcast will be brought in and will be given shelter and respite. You will be a refuge once more. Not an oppressive city, but a city for the oppressed. And last verse. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. You will once again become the great people of the Lord that you are meant to be. First judgment for your wrongs, then restoration because God is good. And guys, as we end Zephaniah, you can feel the weight, the power of it. And we have to ask ourselves, is this not familiar to us? Right? We can relate, of course, to the description of corrupt leaders, people you can't trust who are in charge, even in churches, right? in homes. You can't trust parents sometimes. We are affected by the pain of these broken systems and sinful people and selfishness that's out there. But again, like we're learning, we are also part of the sin. Right? We are part of the injustice at times. So Zephaniah urges the people here, he says, don't put all your eggs in all of that changing. Don't put everything in like, well, the world needs to get better and then I'll be a better person, right? But you need to move in your heart and your soul to move towards trusting and seeking the Lord, right? And see, the thing is, what, like with all these prophets, we see how God has given he cannot give up on his people. It's not in his nature. Otherwise, it would be a conditional love here. It says it's unconditional. And like we've been saying in this series, the same is true with me and the same is true with you. He cannot give up on you. It's not in his nature. And when we talk about all the judgment on the Israelites because of their complacency for him, it is out of a heart of love from a God who won't leave his people in their sin and walk away. It's easy to walk away, but our God fights for us, right? Unlike if we were in his position, right? What did Jonah do, right? Did he fight for the people of Nineveh? He ran ran away, right? Hosea, I'm sure he had thoughts of giving out on, on Gomer, running out, right? Zephaniah here is angry at the people, like, guys, what are you doing? God uses these prophets, but these prophets are not God. God is faithful. God's holiness, he is different than we are. Set apart in his character. His faithfulness cannot be matched by a human. He will not leave us alone in our sin and walk away. He makes us deal with it as judgment, but the core thing to remember from Zephaniah is his judgment 
is his mercy. Okay, that's what Zephaniah is about. His judgment is his mercy. God judges even his own people because, it's not because he hates them, it's because he loves them so much he doesn't want them to ruin themselves. And here's the incredible hope today. If you're here today and you've committed your life to Christ, then the scriptures say you are a new creation. What needed to happen to the Israelite peoples over and over again, they needed to be made new. They need to be brought back to the desert state to remember that their God is the only God and he has given them everything to be made lowly and humble to then come back and to see this flourishing and this blessing. And then they get too greedy and then they have to be brought back to the desert state, right? If you're here today, you're a new, and you're in Christ, you're a new creation, right? You've given, we've been given the grace of once in a lifetime to be brought low, to be crucified with Christ upon his cross, so that as Christ defeated death and rose to new life, we could be brought back to that same life through the Spirit. We have the Spirit within us working to produce the fruits of his nature. But here's the thing. Here's the thing we don't always realize. The fruit of the Spirit is actually a judgment on the fruit of the flesh. So here's what's so crucial. Hey guys, and I don't have a slide for this, and I apologize, but just if you have a Bible, open up to Galatians 5, or go, actually do it if you can. Go, go to Galatians 5. Uh, it's a verse, 5.22 is the verse on the fruit of the Spirit. But just think about this. Galatians 5, the second half of it, Paul has this commentary where he talks about the Spirit is actually against the flesh. The Spirit is actually against the flesh. And there's this list where it says, here are the works of the flesh. Here's what happens if you just trust the flesh. It's selfishness, envy, greed, immorality, lust, idolatry. It's all this self-seeking nature. That's what it is. But the Spirit as judgment on that list, on those sins, on sin. What Christ did on the cross is he didn't judge you and me. He judged sin all time. He judged sin. He says, that list I judge and what I'm going to give you as my mercy, and my judgment is my mercy, is I'm going to give you the fruit of the Spirit. And what is it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Think about it. If you're here today and you struggle with lust, let's just say that for one, right? Struggle with lust. It's a big deal. Lust for power, money, sex, whatever it could be, right? It's a big thing. God says, I want to judge your lust by giving you self-control. I want to give you self-control. That's the mercy. I'm going to judge your sin by giving you self-control, right? Like think about what, what could I, I struggle with envy, with strife, with jealousy, whatever. I want to judge that by giving you joy. You have to surrender to me, but I want to give you peace. I want to give you kindness. That's the kind of judgment God brings on our old nature by giving us a new nature by the Spirit. It's incredible. So we get this Old Testament picture of God actually judging the people, right? But it's always supposed to be an example for us here on a soul level, that God judges our sin, but to bring us out to save us from sin, to bring us out of our sin, to give us new life. Otherwise, he would just see a sinful people and he would wipe us all off the planet, right? He says, no, I actually want to save you so that you are no longer a slave to sin, and I want to give you a life. So it should be encouraging to you. It's heavy. It's deep, right? And if you read Galatians 5, it's crazy. Just last thing. I'm sorry, I'm getting kind of preachy. But <laughs> if you read that last thing, the, the works of the flesh, right? It says, these things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. 
If you want the kingdom of heaven, then you don't want those things, right? If you want those things, you do not want the kingdom of heaven. That's stark, right? But if you say, no, but I want, I look at this list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, God, give, yes, I want it all. Then humble yourself, seek the Lord, seek righteousness. He wants to do that for his people. And he gave us this gift of grace and eternal life with him through Jesus Christ. So when that final day of the Lord comes, right, when that final second coming comes, in the end, our advocate is not our own resume, right? It's not, look out what I did for you. It's look what I allowed Jesus to do in me. Look what I surrendered and Christ built his kingdom through what we could do as the church, right? And it starts at a soul level. And this should spur us on. This should spur us on people to like to dwell in God's presence, right? Seeing his strength in our weakness, seeking him because he has made us new. He has given us everything. And we don't want to turn from him and praising him that even though his righteousness means judgment on unrighteousness, his judgment is his mercy. And we can praise him in that today. And that's who we get to respond to today. And you know how we do it. We sing songs of praise. It's not just a gimmick. It's not just something that we do because it's church culture or whatever. We sing praises to God. Look at the lyrics. Think about it as you're singing it. Right? We pray. We get to be with God in communion. We get to give of our earthly treasures to this community so that this community can bless everyone around us. And this could actually be kind of like Judah was supposed to be. Hub City can be a refuge for the oppressed. Hub City can be in the city, a light in the darkness, right? And then, of course, communion. And Shelly's, thank you, Shelly, has presented uh, or prepared communion for us, right? And we go to the table and remember this is all possible because of Jesus on the cross, his body broken for us and his blood spilled so that he could make us righteous, right? And when you go, remember this is all because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Let me read the part of worship in chapter 3, verse 14, verse 15, one more time, and let's pray and let's respond to that king today. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Let me pray and let's respond.